As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide supports financial professionals with client-friendly resources and innovative solutions to help create greater retirement security for their clients. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best. And economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. He was so good a number of days ago, we hauled Julian Emanuel back here because we didn't understand a word he said. Chief Equity and Quantitative <laughs> Strategist, Evercore, ISI. I want to go to the fact, folks, and we protect the copyright. I'm not going to send you out. Earnings edge. This is what Emmanuel has brought to Evercore ISI every day, the granular nature of where we are. And I want to know what disinflation is doing to your granular research note here early in earnings season. Well, it, it's the revenue line is coming in. And that that's really the story. And then the question is, is who are the companies? Where are the pockets within sectors that can actually hold the bottom line? given the fact that the top line is decelerating because inflation is coming in. You know, Zero Hedge every afternoon does a brilliant job with Bloomberg charts here, and one of them is a short squeeze chart. The last two days, big up equity market, we've had a massive short squeeze. Then what? How do we get to the then what after we take out all the negative bets on the market? So if you think about it, the last two months we are within this range in the S&P 3,800 the low, 4,100 the high. And what it is is this tug of war between the view, and rightly so, that inflation decelerating more rapidly than people expected. You know, Ed Hyman is looking for 2.5% inflation in 2023, which is very, very bullish on balance, except for the fact that part of the way that you get there is a recession. And when you think about the ISMs, you think about the leading economic indicators, you think about the money supply contracting, they're all telling you that that recession is going to happen. But to the point of possibly seeing lower earnings and yet upgrading the forecast for the earnings target, as Tom was just talking about, how much is that gloom already priced in? A recession, a downturn in earnings, the forecasts that are coming in? So the reason that the market has gotten off to as good a start as it has is you look at bottoms up consensus and it started the year at 230. Everyone knew that that was a fictitious number. Our number is 206, but I would suggest that actually in talking to our clients, the buy side is looking for more like 200. Now, part of the narrative around this short covering, among other things, is that that number could creep higher. So we were talking about some of the cuts that we've seen, the announced cuts at technology companies. And this morning, as we get the slew of S&P companies reporting earnings, we're seeing a similar tone. Is that going to be the theme? Cutbacks, is it steep enough to get you excited? So look, 
cutbacks have actually rewarded stocks over these last several months. But there is a finite aspect to that because, you know, when you look at the way reports are coming in, there's only so much you can do to massage your bottom line if your top line's decelerating. I want to talk to you about not so much it's anathema to Julian Emanuel, but he's a fundamental guy working for Ed Hyman. And Ed Hyman has always believed in mixing in economics with with fundamental analysis and technical analysis. Ralph Ankampora darkened the door yesterday, the technician, the giant of the CMT world, and he was heated. There was a bottom constructed in October. That's a lonely call right now. Was there a bottom constructed in October? So what it really comes down to is if there's going to be a recession in the next 12 months, the answer is no, okay? If the recession is going to be both postponed because we have such an accumulated level of savings, because China's reopening, because the labor market right. has confounded everyone with its strength, that could have been a bottom because down 27.5 at the low in October right. was the average of 100 years of non-recession. Can you bear fold your notorious and lonely 6.1% China GDP call over to American equity optimism? So, and actually, the interesting thing is, is our China guy took his number down to five nine because the fourth quarter of 2022 is going to be better than expected, reported better than expected. Um, and, and what it is, it's less a direct effect on the U.S. economy and more a psychological boost because you look at the greatest names in corporate America, one of which is reporting next week in between the Fed and the unemployment report. And th if those stocks do well, because China's doing better, that's a wealth effect in the U.S. Just real quick here, because this has been a theme over the past couple of days and weeks, is people are moving toward Europe as the outperformer this year. Do you buy that with the China reopening disproportionately affecting that region? We buy that. We buy that. And, and the interesting thing is some people might say, well, the ECB is now the most hawkish central bank in the world. And and that is probably true looking at the next six months. But the fact is, is that you are absolutely ridding Europe once and for all of the psychology of negative interest rates. And that is a massive positive for equities long term. We have a big take story out this morning, folks. This is from our crack Federal Reserve team and bond team. Liz Capel McCormick writing with Janelle uh, Marty as well. And uh, this is outside your purview, but this is something Mr. Hyman's looking at. And he has debt ceiling experience. If we have a debt limit fight, as the headline goes, does it mean the end of QT? Does it radically adjust the Fed policy that your shop sees? Well, it, it certainly uh, ups the stakes with regard to what the chairman's going to say on February the 1st, because there's no question that he's going to be asked about that. Uh, and, and look, the, the, the part of the bull case of the last month is that there are cuts priced in the back half of the year, lots of cuts. Are those only going to be in response to a debt ceiling debacle uh, or are they a consequence of an economy that would be turning down naturally? It's really an open question. Earnings season, earnings edge as well. What's your earning edge going to say when you write the last report for Q4? It was, uh, it was a sloppy season, much more closer to the pre-pandemic normal. Um, numbers are coming down. 
But again, at the index level, not as important. It's all about picking stocks in this okay. environment. Julian Emanuel, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate that. Inflation, market volatility, economic insecurity. Who isn't looking for greater retirement security these days? As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide helps millions of people invest in their financial futures. With client-friendly resources and innovative solutions, Nationwide supports financial professionals so they can help clients feel more confident in their retirement years. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash businessgoldcard. We've got 23000 per on Bitcoin, which means we can go to John Farrell. He is in London with the always interesting Callum Pickering. Mr. Farrell. I actually have to start with an apology, Tom, just quickly. I'm taking a lot of heat for this from the last segment. Aluminium, okay? Just yes. aluminium. Yes, I did. I, uh, yes. Not aluminium. I, I, Tom, I, I think we did say. it back to front. I think you did the English version. I did the American version. We spent too much time together. Yeah, yeah, TK, thank good. you. Yeah, sure. Callum Pickering with me now, senior economist at Berenberg. Callum, I don't want to start with that. I want to start with this. This from BNP Paribas in the last 24 hours. I'll read the quote out for you and I'll get your view on it. Soft landing has been the catchphrase of a still young 23, but we think it will go out the window in the same fashion as transitory inflation did in 2022. That line right there, do you agree? Well, I think there are risks to this scenario. I think the danger is in markets we start pricing in, I would call it la-la land, which is we have two risks to worry about. There's the huge global energy price shock, which so far actually, at least in Europe and the US, doesn't seem to be playing out quite as aggressively as markets might have thought, say, six months ago. But then there's the reaction to that, which is tight financial conditions from central banks. Remember, this energy shock hit tight labor markets and tight product markets coming out of COVID and triggered these second round effects. And so the danger here is that we think, well, if the first risk is not so bad, central banks just cruise inflation to 2%. We don't really get anything severe when it comes to the recession and everything's going to be fine. History suggests central banks rarely get these kind of calls right. We already made a central bank mistake in 2021. The danger here is that we forget that central banks occasionally make these kind of mistakes and then land in a bit of a mess in the second half of the year. What's the mistake potentially this year? Doing too little or doing too much? I think probably doing too much is the bigger mistake. Uh, monetary policy works with the lag. But the problem is once you've reacted late to inflationary pressure, it's very difficult as a central bank to justify pausing while you still have signs of inflation. And so a good example, take the latest mix of UK data, clear measures of economic activity weak through December and January, no question. But then you look at the November data for services inflation and December services inflation, you look at the wage data and it's still edging up. Now, the economist in me says these price data reflect things that were happening in the economy three to six months ago. And so the prices three to six months from now will reflect these weak measures of activity. So central banks should indeed pause. Um, whether or not you can do that with inflation with a nine handle or an eight handle in the US. Is, well, let's is, talk is about the US question. situation. Tom mentioned it earlier this morning, 190,000 on jobless claims. What does that data tell you? 
Well, again, labor market um, data react with lag, underlying fundamentals. Um, you know, the reason why the Phillips curve was so appealing for a good 30 years as an economic policy model is because governments and central banks thought if we create some inflation, we'll have strong employment data. Um, that still holds. Uh, we have a high inflationary environment. Um, in nominal terms, economies are racing ahead. This gives us an illusion of strength, which encourages strong labor demand. I don't think we're heading here into a severe re recession. I think you know, business cycle dynamics are not late cycle. This is an early cycle economy. The Western world's an early cycle economy that's been intercepted by this big exogenous shock and then central banks have reacted. But it's far too early to say that recessions won't happen as a general rule, um, I think actually all the pain is probably still to come. What can you learn from corporate guidance? So we've got a couple of earnings reports this morning. I'll cherry pick two. DR Horton, as a home builder in the United States, purchase contracts the three months through December, down 38% from a year ago. I'll pick another one, 3M, job cuts, 2,500. I'm told there's a big China reopening. It's going to help manufacturing industrials. There's one cutting jobs. What do you read into these right now? Well, that seems to be the effect of the tight financial conditions on economies rather than the initial energy shock. And this is, again, where we just have to consider the lags that we're dealing with. The energy price shock, which actually for the US, the UK, and even in Europe where we've managed to get enough supply now, it's really a terms of trade shock rather than a supply shock. We get the energy we need, we just pay more for it. We see that immediately. There's not much of a lag between the high price and the impact on economic activity. But there is a lag between what central banks do and economic activity. And so it's not inconceivable that there's very unusual window where the first shock isn't as bad as expected, things look fine, but then we're just waiting for the monetary uh, shock to come through. That's why the housing market data and the labor market data are important because those are major transmission mechanisms for, for monetary policy. And that's where I think we, we fall into this trap of thinking economies are fine, central banks need to go a little bit further to cool inflation, but in fact actually we've just made the opposite mistake to what we made in 2021, which was then to ease too much. Now the risk is we tighten too much. So are we pricing in what you call la-la land relative to what you expect later this year? I think the risk is that we start to price in this La La Land situation. I don't think it's inconceivable, but it's conditional upon certain things happening. And the main thing is that central banks don't make a mistake. And the other thing that we just need to keep in mind is we are out of the great moderation world where inflation was trending to the downside and central banks could make a one-sided bet that you just stabilize growth and trust that inflation will remain low. We're now in an inflationary environment, aging populations, deglobalization, right, more fiscal shift. activism, which means monetary policy is asymmetric in the opposite direction. We worry more about inflation risks than we worry about deflation risks. Or to put it another way, central banks now face a trade-off between growth and inflation. And remember, we wouldn't be worried about a recession now if central banks hadn't reacted. If we were happy to just accept the inflation risk from this oil and gas shock, then we would avoid a recession. But central banks say, actually, no, we're going to accept the growth risk. We'll put economies into recession to control inflation. And therefore, to the extent that this oil, uh, excuse me, this gas shock is not hitting as hard as we thought because demand is stronger, that may mean that central banks say, well, if demand is stronger, we need to go further. That's what we hear it's in complicated. Europe right now. Callum Pickering of Berenberg. Callum, it's more complicated than I think these markets let on in the early weeks of 2023. <laughs> Right now, and well, you can pick this economist or that economist, this strategist or that strategist, but it helps to have a chief investment strategist and chief economist, this at City Global Wealth, who is truly expert 
at linking the earnings and profitability dynamics of American corporations into our greater American economy. Owning the high ground on that is Stephen Whiting, and he joins us uh, right now. Stephen, I love in your research note how you say there are beats out there and there's a bang-up fourth quarter, but you're just not all on board the American recovery. How out of how how painful will those corporate earnings announcements be throughout the year? Well, there's something to adjust to later. It's it looks so much in the analyst earnings estimates like the fourth quarter was the recession, and here we are sitting in the recovery. And it actually looks a little bit like that in financial markets. And it would be wonderful if that were really the truth. If we weren't just on the leading edge of a hit that we're going to have in profits. Um, and of course, how markets traded last year are not anticipating this to be you know, some kind of profit nirvana. We don't have 20% declines uh, you know, without something. But if you really take a look at the estimates, they fall at a 15% annualized rate in the quarter past. This is like a setting a hurdle that a toddler could leap over. Most companies by far are going to beat those estimates. But then they're putting all that promise of the future that the year will be a growth year for EPS in the out quarters. But as soon as the second calendar quarter, the April through June quarter, there's a substantial gain. Now, there's some complexities. When you beat your earnings estimates, it's easier to hit those later numbers mm-hmm. because of the level they come in. At. But the idea that this is all behind us in the economy, I, I don't think that's true at all. Then how do you participate? I'm going to assume that City Global Wealth Management is not enjoying being 185% in cash like the triple <laughs> leveraged all cash fund. How do you We're participate? I know. How do you participate if you're not all in cash? Well, look, we've got to live with the ups and downs of equities markets. And we've had three rallies in excess of 10% since the Fed started tightening. The real rally, the turning point for the economy, the beginning of a new recovery is likely to begin this year. 2024 could be a stronger year for the economy. Do we think that uh, we should already be discounting this recovery? No. So we are uh, playing it safer. Uh, Again, our largest overweights are in firms that are the most consistent dividend growers uh, in pharmaceutical shares uh, that have low cyclicality. I think this very near-term period, especially uh, before we see uh, the January employment report and we probably see the Fed deliver a hawkish 25, uh, is probably going to be a period where we're going to have to settle back a bit. Uh, And again, that does not tell us to time the market and be all out of equities, uh, but we're okay with a short covering rally and low quality shares and just missing that for the near term. Stephen, how much would you lean into oil majors in particular because of that dividend story, that share buyback story, and not necessarily a call on commodity prices? It's a full weighting despite a a poor cyclical backdrop. And we think that a lot of industrial and materials companies uh, are going to see um, earnings downward revisions, are going to see weaker activity this year. I would say, though, uh, that petroleum generally um, is pretty well positioned for for a weak period for the world economy. Um, the downside may be $70 in the Brent price uh, in what will be a probably a mild global recession or something that we might call that. Uh, literally, the U.S. economy is going to have some significant job losses. We don't believe that you have sales declines without real job declines. We're not just talking about job openings. 
But even with that said, OPEC has cut production early. Supply sources around the world are recovering slowly. So I think this is not going to be a particularly bad cycle for energy. Meanwhile, you mentioned the Fed, and we have been steering clear of the Fed because they are in the quiet period ahead of next week. But there is this question inherent in a strengthening financial conditions index, a lesser negative, actually a positive that Tom's been citing as you see the you know stocks rally and as you see bonds rally. At what point does this push the Fed to go further, to do more than people currently expect, simply because this really does kind of make it more difficult for them? Well, look, I think the Fed can't entirely ignore the fact that real data, two months of decline in industrial production, two months of decline in retail sales, uh, you know, too much, uh, two months of a decline in total hours worked, and all of that survey data that you mentioned are softening. Plus, we are seeing deceleration in inflation. That's for real here. We have a decline in money supply, yet the Fed is not going to be satisfied. And unfortunately, I think that that is their mistake, as you heard from an earlier guest, uh, that the reality is that there's still pipeline effects on the economy that are coming. The problem for markets is that they can't ignore the slowdown in the economy that will change the Fed's view. And the Fed uh, is in all likelihood going to, to try to weigh against these easing, the easing in financial conditions. You know, will they do that by tightening more and harming the labor market even more, they probably won't. But they're going to leave it to markets to sort this out. Uh, and there can be uh, certainly more corrections ahead simply because of that mismatch. That's a critical distinction, Steve Whiting. If they're going to, quote unquote, leave markets to sort it out, at the end of the day, do markets tell the Fed what to do with its understood asymmetries? When I think about the message at the long end of the bond market, the treasury market is saying, that the Fed is already at an unsustainable funds rate, particularly at now that they shrank their balance sheet $450 billion, they'll continue to lend less to the bond market. You know, that <laughs> yield curve steepening that they predicted on QT didn't happen again. So I think that ultimately the Fed is going to get this forecast. Uh, but again, it is predicated on the notion that our labor markets, that demand for labor is going to fall uh, now that we have sky-high inventories and massive declines in home sales to reckon with uh, in terms of labor markets. So the Fed will get the message of markets. I believe the longer-term bond market is telling the Fed the right, uh, the right message. Uh, I just do think that they're going to say, like they said in the minutes, uh, that if they, markets have misjudged their reaction function and they're going to ease here quickly, um, that's not what they're going to do. I wish they would pause, but they're not right. Going to. And Lisa, you dovetail that with what Andrew Hollenhorst said the other day: of yeah, we go up twenty-five, their new call from fifty, et cetera. But then you get to a level, and to Mister Whiting's comments, they stay there. Which is the reason why some people are leaning into the long end <clears throat> because they do believe that or restrict growth. They do believe that the Fed will induce something that's more significant. Stephen, how much are you using longer-term Treasuries, longer-term sovereign debt as a ballast in a really uncertain time? Well, we are. We're overweight long-term treasuries, underweight other markets like Japan, uh, for example. Uh, again, because we believe the correlation between stocks and long-term treasuries, equities and long-term treasuries, will break down and it'll be negatively correlated again. Portfolios will work with you know barbells of, of high risk and low risk. 
at the same time, though, it's the front end of the curve and the, the belly of the curve that's offering real yield. So we have larger overweights there. Uh, and again, this is not to be uh, negative in the long run. We can't be too cute about when uh, markets can recover, but we're just not going to load up on a lot of cyclical risk. Interest rate risk, we think, is peaked uh, in markets. So we don't have to worry about uh, long bond yields going to six or seven. Uh, but we do think that there's a price to pay to keep 10-year Treasury notes at three and a half. Stephen, before we let you go, do you care about the debt ceiling debate? I think it's likely to be, highly likely to be resolved. And I think that the debate over uh, the uh, House Speaker role, again, probably overstates the amount of risk. There are multiple ways to address this. Uh, there are, again, some ways in which we can uh, cause a disruptive period. Again, losing a House Speaker role, not preparing in advance sufficiently for this. Uh, so it can be a market concern. Uh, I doubt that it rises to 2011 levels of worry again. Stephen Whiting, thank you so much. A complete analysis there, and particularly linking in earnings in corporate America into the greater American economy. He is with Citigroup. Inflation, market volatility, economic insecurity. Who isn't looking for greater retirement security these days? As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide helps millions of people invest in their financial futures. With client-friendly resources and innovative solutions, Nationwide supports financial professionals so they can help clients feel more confident in their retirement years. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This is an important conversation this morning in London. Our John Farrell with Kona Hake of EDNF Man. John? Hey, TK. Thank you, buddy. As always, I want to talk about two metals, not just copper, but aluminum as well. Year to date, these two off to the races, absolutely flying. At the moment, year to date, copper up more than 11%, aluminum up more than 10%. We are just three, four weeks into this. Kona Hake joins us right now. Kona, let's talk about it. I want to start with this. It's a big, big picture question, it's an important one. How commodity intensive is this reopening going to be in China? Well, that is actually the big question. I sense that right now it's very sentiment driven. The idea of China reopening is definitely going to lead to a lot of pent up demand, just like it did when the US and Europe opened up after COVID. But in terms of actual manufacturing intensity, which requires a huge amounts of commodity imports, I feel like China's commodity imports are still pretty good. I mean, their stock levels are really quite high right now. So I think right now it's potentially the copper rally is running ahead of itself in anticipation of more to come. But I think we just have to be a little bit patient on that. So when you hear Jeff Curry of Goldman say 11,500 this year, you're pushing back? I think short term, I think we might have run ahead of ourselves. But I, I do agree that copper fundamentals are tight. Inventories are still pretty slim. The supply side still looks like there's a huge amount of capex that still re is required. 
Um, but I don't think we're at crunch time right now. But I think right now it's very sentiment driven. I understand it's all thing China. When you look at the marginal dollar increase of China GDP, has it become more or less commodity intensive over the last decade or so? Is that something that's declined? Yes. I think China's reopening is significant, but the, it's going to be a different China. The structural changes that we're seeing in China, I mean, we've been talking a lot about the population decline, the fact that the property sector is no longer as hot as it was before, the manufacturing is slowed down, there's no longer that big impulse and push you know, to go back to your point about intense, intensity of consumption of copper, I just don't think it's, it's going to be as strong as the 2010 rebound, for example. Well, talk to me about where you do want to be. What bucket do I want to be in right now, preparing for the demand that's going to come? Where's that demand going to show up? Oh, so I do think commodities are a good place. Um, and I feel like Copper and Ali have, you know, slightly gone ahead of themselves. I think crude oil is justified because... You know, right now, particularly ahead of the February 5th European ban on Russian um, products, I think China has a huge role to play there. So they're going to be importing more crude in order to meet that gap in terms of product exports. And they're doing that in a big way. I think mobility in China, it's just starting. And that's going to be, again, very oil intensive. So I like crude oil very much. I think to a certain extent, ags as well, I think as they start, the Chinese go out and look in you know, going back into restaurants and consuming what they couldn't behave back in lockdown. I think that could be quite good for the beefs and therefore the feedstocks, which is the grains. Triple digit crude back on the table? Just about. I think we might touch 100, but not necessarily go higher. The reason I ask that question is because we're all trying to figure out how much of this we import to the United States, to Europe. Do we import higher prices from what's happening in China right now? And that is the risk. So I think, yes, there's a potential that we see a little bit of an uptick in commodity prices. But for the reasons I mentioned before, I don't think we can sustain higher because the rest of the world is moving into recession. So we're just a little bit too China-centric right now. And I think we need to balance that out by the fact that the USA and Europe are slowing. When you say the rest of the world's going into recession, who do you mean? Um, Okay, good question. Because the idea is, at least the bond markets are telling us, that that Europe and the USA are going to into recession. Maybe a mild one, but it's still heading that way. The, the, ten, the yield curves are definitely pointing to that. Um, obviously, don't look at the stock markets. I think sure. that nothing's, everything's great and rosy. But I think if we are paying attention to PMIs and maybe not today's European one, but US PMIs are going to come out later today. If those start showing continuous contraction, I think we are looking at a recession, and I think even if it's mild or not, it has to be taken into account, and that might have an offsetting balance to any China reopening. The markets are playing a relative game. Are things better or worse than they were three months ago? Clearly, they're better in Europe. One thing I don't think we've discussed enough is the fact that Europe is still projecting, what, 0%, 0.5% GDP growth for the year ahead. Why aren't we talking more about stagflation? Why is that word not being used a whole lot more? Actually, if you talk to some hedge funds, they are talking about stagflation. And it's interesting because in in a stagflationary environment, you want to stay long some commodities, but you also don't want to stay commodities that are economically dependent. In that case, something like ags could do quite well because those are income inelastic. So no matter what happens to your economy, you need a certain level of agricultural foods. So some people like agriculture in their basket as a good hedge against stagflation. Um, so you'd prefer a long and soft commodities as opposed to a long in base metals? Um, oh, good one. Um, yes. <laughs> Interesting. That's the year ahead conviction call for you and the team. Kona Hack, thank you. A VDNF man. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. 
Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce.